everyone. Welcome to JP Morgan's At Any Rate podcast. I'm Meera Chandan, co-head of FX Strategy at JP Morgan. And I'm joined today by Jay Barry from New York, uh, co-head of US Rate Strategy. So it's been a US-centric week, and that's what we will be talking about. And hence, uh, Jay and I are doing a joint podcast. And uh, Jay, you aptly, um, in your podcast last week, described this week as a Super Bowl for rate markets. And I think that's uh, clearly what it's been. Uh, we've had the Treasury's uh, quarterly funding announcement, the FOMC. Uh, we had the Powell pushback against March. Uh, the employment cost index was sort of flew under the radar. And then obviously we've ended up with this eye-popping um, US payrolls report today. So we're going to get to the Fed and the employment data, obviously. But let's just start with the quarterly funding announcement and just get that out of the way. Um, this was clearly a source of volatility the last couple of quarters. You had a pretty good call this time around uh, on this uh, in that the expectation was it would be steady as she goes. Uh, but, um, you know, what were the main takeaways there? And is there anything in there that's causing you to sort of rethink uh, your estimates for the future? Yeah, thanks, Mira. What a week indeed, right? I mean, I look at five-year treasury yields having traded in a range of upwards of 30 basis points. Uh, and even just the last sort of 48 hours or so, the volatility has been intense. So it did live up to, I think, that moniker of it being the Super Bowl. But on the refunding, I think it was a steady as she goes, do no harm sort of announcement. You're right. The last two refundings have been market moving and were the beginning of very strong directional trends with rates moving higher after the August refunding and moving precipitously lower after November but both of them supported by shifts in the data flow as well. But I think the point is, is not there's not a whole lot that's changed with respect to Treasury's financing needs over the last few months. People got excited about very benign financing needs on Monday afternoon, particularly the outlook for the coming quarter. But I think we know that that is probably seasonal in nature related to the likely strength of tax receipts coming both from strong labor markets as well as from likely strong capital gains tax receipts. And that's important because on average, something like a third of the Treasury's receipts come in in that second quarter of the year. And while that is a seasonal support, it doesn't sort of change anything for the longer term prospects for the fiscal deficit. And we continue to look for a $1.675 trillion deficit in fiscal 24. So against that backdrop, the Treasury Department delivered a round of coupon increases identical to what we got in November, and also made the case that this is likely the last round that we'll need to see. So from that perspective, it was very benign and delivered on what I would say consensus expectations. But if we think about the path forward, Treasury did identify the likelihood that at some point it will need to begin increasing coupon auction sizes once again. And that's no surprise to us. I look at beyond fiscal 2024 into fiscal 25 and beyond, and even against baseline deficit expectations with the assumption that the QT process is done and Treasury is likely to be inadequately financed from the current auction calendar as it's been set forth for the next few months. So I do think at some point we will need to see larger coupon auction sizes, but at least from what we know right now, it's unlikely to see this until probably next February or some point next year. So hopefully for the time being, Quarterly refunding announcements go back to being the domain of folks who like to look at treasury finance all the time, like ourselves, and don't end up being a macro market moving event. And I think if anything, that's where the treasury department would like this to be because it does like to be regular and predictable. It does like to lead the markets in a direction over a longer period of time so that its actual announcements are well understood before they actually happen. 
That's that, that's good news because then FX folks like me don't have to pay that much attention to it. You know, let's get into the meat of it. Let's get uh, let's turn to the Fed. Um, so seems like a March pushback, um, but there were certainly a lot of other things in Powell's commentary that felt a bit uh, more dovish to me. In particular, I thought it was interesting that there was a fair bit of asymmetry in the reaction function to potential weakness in data, particularly on the employment side. And, um, and you know, if, if employment data is strong, then there was pretty much an emphasis that there would be a singular focus on uh, on inflation. And there's certainly more confidence around uh, around the inflation discussions as well. Um, do you agree with that assessment or do you, do you feel like this was actually um, a different outcome for, from what you were expecting? I do agree with you, Mira. I think this is an incremental step in the direction in the continuum from tightening to easing. And, and certainly the first sort of indication there is that the Fed moved to a genuinely neutral bias. The second, while it was not ready to declare victory on inflation, the comments that Chair Powell made in the press conference following the statement, I think were indicative of a Fed that is becoming more comfortable with it easing at some point this year, though it did push back on expectations of March. And certainly that seems pretty sage in the context of today's employment report. But the chair mentioned confident or confidence with respect to the inflation outlook, sometime, something like 20 times over the course of the press conference. And while we know core PCE is running 2.9% over a year ago right now, it's not hard for this to envision it running something closer to 2.5% in the next couple of months. So the, I think the takeaway here is we need to become comfortable with the Fed easing at some point. And our modal view is the Fed will begin cutting in June, but there's a much higher risk that this comes in May right now. And you're right. I think this is taking some sort of asymmetric function here where the focus is wholly on inflation, whereas labor markets and growth only matter if they surprise to the downside, because Powell did indeed make it say, make it sound like they would be relatively sanguine about upside surprises, but they could ease more quickly or earlier if labor markets and growth disappoint. So from my perspective with thinking about the rates market, this sort of structurally supports some of the trades that are typically profitable in the months leading up to the Fed easing cycle. And we've talked about the consistent decline in intermediate yields that typically comes three to five months before the beginning of a Fed easing cycle and the consistent steepening that occurs at the long end. And I think if we take a step back, this is moving in that direction and supportive of an anticipation of both lower yields and a steeper curve, but maybe near term um, in the context of what happened today, while that is certainly a positive, um, it, it may be a bit choppier in, until we see the next few rounds of inflation data. So that's a good segue into the payrolls report. And my question to you is going to be, you know, clearly U.S. resilience is just uh, continuing with a vengeance. And, um, you know, does the payrolls report today, the employment report, particularly the average hourly earnings, completely negate what um, what message Powell gave us? And I, I think it was also interesting that the average hourly earnings um, you know, really stuck out on the on the upside, um, just in contrast to the employment cost index, which was sort of moving in the right direction and came out uh, earlier this week. Um, so do you think there's enough here in the employment report to sort of offset what uh, Powell told us on uh, Wednesday? I think overall, Mira, it just helps take out the likelihood of a March cut. Even though the chair had pushed back strongly against this, and I think he had to sort of sift through his notes to find that answer on Wednesday afternoon, even before this morning's data, markets were pricing in relatively high probability of a March cut, perhaps owing to the concerns over regional banks. And 
I think the average hourly earnings data today were certainly a surprise, and given the reacceleration on an over-year-ago basis. But I think something that we have been flagging is that there is a consistent strength that we've noticed to January employment data the last three years now in a row. And that's something that our economics team had flagged. And now you've had three straight Januaries where employment growth has exceeded expectations by hundreds of thousands. And I think that is due to labor markets being tight and seeing fewer job losses than you would seasonally. And it's probably impacted the other data as well. But the important point here is that even aside from this January data, it does show that the rolling average of employment growth was still strong heading into the beginning of this year. And perhaps that's what Chair Powell was trying to convey with his comments on Wednesday. And it's threading the needle between expecting easing sometime later this year, perhaps in late spring or early summer, versus expecting it in the next six weeks at the March meeting. So um, if, if they do have this asymmetric reaction relative to labor markets and growth, and yet inflation data continues to move in the right direction. I think this is, on the whole, supportive of a Fed that is easing somewhere in the vicinity of the middle of the year. But you know, certainly, I think kind of looping this back to rates markets once again, you know, at its peak, the markets uh, were pricing in a pretty high probability of a March cut and about 150 basis points of cuts this year earlier this week. Now, with the backup we've had, markets are clearly pricing in a de minimis probability of a March cut and about 125 basis points of cuts for this year. Um, but I think there is a near-term risk that we could continue to surprise to the upside on yields because we do really not have any first-tier data over the next week. And if anything, looping this back to your original question, we do have supply to underwrite next week. And while treasury auctions have been digested very easily this year because of this shift towards an expectation of easing at some point, Considering how we've repriced Mark, March, it may mean that it may take a little bit of a more concession to underwrite them, and it may mean that near term, there is some further room for yields to continue to move higher. But I think we've spoken a lot about rates markets here, Mira, and this is obviously a big week for kind of thinking about relative monetary policy differentials. And I guess a number of central banks have moved um, to more neutral biases over the last couple of weeks. The dollar has been range bound recently for the last few weeks. What are you taking away from what happened on Wednesday afternoon with the Fed and what it means for your outlook for the broad dollar? Yeah, so very, uh, definitely a very dramatic uh, week for us in FX. Um, and, you know, if you kind of um, uh, think through the noise here, I think, you know, the, the important thing here is it doesn't really matter if you're starting at March or May or June. At the end of the day, I think the key thing here as you're looking down 2024 is that um, the rate cuts are coming. And it's not just from the Fed, it's from all of the central banks as well. So it's really more about yield compression. I think that the comfort um, that Powell expressed with inflation means uh, we have a shelf life for this Fed dovishness to play out. I mean, this is a major regime shift. Um, I don't think they're going to go back and forth on this. Uh, and certainly, I was concerned about the average hourly earnings today. But you know, as, as you pointed out, Jay, there are certain seasonality issues here, which sort of uh, keeps us on hold until the next inflation print. But uh, overall, look, we've been you know for the dollar, a lot of people have been thinking that. Fed cuts by themselves should be dollar bearish. Uh, we've been pushing back against that notion. Um, for one, this is a very unique Fed cutting cycle. Um, you know, if our economist views are right and the Fed does start cutting in June, well, you know, at that point in time, just over half of central banks globally would already be cutting by then. So that's that's a pretty big number. You know, that 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 would put us basically as uh, 2024 is the most synchronized, um, you know, cutting cycles. 
out of any of the last five cutting cycles. On average, if you go back last five cutting cycles or so, uh, only you know 15% or 20% of the central banks are cutting uh, rates when the Fed starts easing. So this is this is a synchronized cycle um, where the Fed is not alone um, in easing. And this means that US yields are unlikely to compress as much as they have in the past. And as a result, the yield support for the dollar will pretty much stay intact. Um, and even now, you know, if I take a look at our economist projections, I think uh, the expectation is that the dollar will end up yielding more than 40% of the currencies globally. And that's a pretty big deal for a defensive currency like the dollar. So um, the Fed was dovish. I think the good news here is that the yield compression stays in place as we're looking down 2024. Um, but um, does this mean that you know we should be bearish the dollar? Absolutely not. In fact, I think the medium term bias, uh, just given the yield support um, to the dollar still remains to the upside, particularly given how resilient um, the US growth data has been as well. Um, you know, that growth in yield exceptionalism is really something that that should end up uh, being a source of support and at a minimum should prevent the dollar from weakening in any sustainable manner. I think that's a really important point, Mira, when you talk about the yield pillar. Certainly while we are medium term bullish on US duration, if the Fed's not going to be moving back into accommodative territory, and there are factors to think about term premium remaining higher, then that's gonna be something that should restrain US yields overall and an important point. But I wanna sort of hone in on the other pillar about your bullish US dollar bias, and that's growth. Um, so how is that second pillar panning out? You've talked a little bit about it right here, but can you dig in a little bit more? Yeah, there's been more movement on that front, um, to be honest, and probably more towards the pro-cyclical side, meaning um, growth signals, at least if I take a look at the growth signals in hand um, from outside of the US, they seem to be um, pointing towards some dollar weakness in the near term. Uh, sure, US growth has been pretty robust itself, but what we're seeing is that um, if I take a look at the growth metrics um, outside of the US in um, in uh, Europe and to some extent in China, certainly more broadly in Asia, uh, we're starting to see at a minimum stabilization in growth, which is the first important step. Um, you know, the good news is we're not seeing growth downgrades anymore. With that, that would be more clearly dollar dollar bullish, but that's that's certainly seized. And in fact, what we're seeing is either stabilization and in fewer cases some improvement in growth. Um, and certainly the Asian PMIs, for example, this week were interesting on that front. We saw pretty much. Um, all but two countries in the region show month-on-month uh, -month increases in the PMI. So, and, and we're seeing a similar message from our growth uh, forecast revisions as well from our economists. So certainly the growth signals in hand are turning um, and leaning a bit more dollar bearish, which is, I think, a bit of a concern, um, you know, if you consider what our medium-term bias, uh, more constructive view on the dollar is. But there's other things going on as well. And, you know, for one thing, um, you know, coming back to the U.S., we are getting closer to the U.S. elections. And what we're finding is that as the as the you know sort of playing field for the presidential candidates is narrowing, the noise and the market focus on tariffs has started to increase. And you know we've done quite a bit of work around um, you know the transmission mechanisms of uh, uh, of what that events outcome on FX markets could be. And the clearest one that we can find, the clearest transmission mechanism would be any imposition of tariffs. And even if they're not actually imposed the market pricing in more odds of, um, of tariffs. And um, as the news reporting, the news count around tariffs has gone up and the noise around tariffs has gone up, uh, what we found is that we are seeing signs of the dollar becoming more correlated with that. 
Are we starting to see, you know, wall curves respond to that in terms of more steepening pricing and more of a risk premium around the event? Um, and, um, you know, as a rule of thumb, uh, what we basically highlighted in the past is that that is a 50% pass through of tariffs to the dollar. So for example, if 10% tariffs were put on, uh, uh, on US imports, that would lead us to about five or 6% strengthening the broad dollar index, uh, just mechanically. So um, certainly, you know, any kind of improvement or stabilization you're seeing in global growth, um, you know, it's going to be quite hard for investors to take advantage of that if in the in the background, what you're also hearing is the possibility um, that we might have to contend with this other major issue of tariffs uh, down the road. And that's going to be certainly something to focus on. So, um, yeah, I mean, the short answer to your question is it looks like things are improving and sort of lining up in favor of um, sort of some dollar downside here. But frankly, you know, without much longevity and sustainability, um, around it because because of these major event risks we have penciled in down the road. Yeah, that's another important point. And I think at least for us in rates, we're not quite paying attention to that event risk around the election quite yet, uh, but that's something that's gonna come into view as we get past the primary season and it's got meaningful implications, but in a sort of different manner. So just final question for you before we wrap up today. Beyond the dollar, uh, what's the broad takeaway for other currencies that you're thinking about right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think the single biggest theme in FX is yields compression. As I said, the Fed's cutting rates, but it's not alone. Um, at some point in 2024, we're looking for 70 to 80% of central banks to be cutting rates. And what that means is that um, the lowest yielding currencies that were quite vulnerable for the last couple of years are going to start to become more resilient. Um, so while I think that this leaves, this environment leaves the dollar pretty much um, sort of more range-bound, consolidative, perhaps with uh, modest gains around it. Um, I think there's a lot more to be said for the relative value and yield convergence themes, uh, which are going to be way more monetizable and will have potential to move more, substantially more. So, um, you know, one such theme, just as an example that we've been pointing out within uh, within sort of the EMEA European region is, um, is you take a currency um, like Czech, where the central bank is going to be cutting rates, the high yielding, uh, the high yield that it currently benefits from or has benefited from in the past is going to gradually erode, um, you know, and um, and as yields compress, it's, it's basically valuations are going, valuations which look rich right now are going to converge to cheaper currencies as well. And, you know, we're pointing out to currencies like Sweden, for example, which are going to benefit from rate cuts, just given how levered the economy is and um, and how much floating rate debt that, that is, and these these are cheap currencies. So I think those convergence trades, uh, convergence themes where carry converges, valuations should eventually converge. is probably the biggest theme that I would um, I would say is uh, is the takeaway from the last couple of weeks. ECB included. ECB was dovish as well. Uh, in the, not 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 in an outright sense, not relative to what the market is pricing in, but was certainly dovish relative to its own past commentary. So certainly, central banks are pivoting, and I think that's going to have quite a bit of yield convergence impact on um, on the currency space. That's great. Thanks for that, Mira, and thanks for having me on the podcast today. Thank you to all of our listeners. We'll leave it at that. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2024 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on February 2nd, 2024.